All right, so everybody, this is the panel presentation of authors on the topic of rebuilding from the broken. So just checking everyone's here for the right thing. That's the session we have today. Um, I'd like to firstly respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of Mabantua Alice Springs, the land we are meeting on today. And what a privilege to be here today amongst the rain-soaked lands that smell so good. We pay respect to all First Nation elders, past, present and future. And we're lucky to have today three wonderful writers. As advertised, Melinda Bobbis was unfortunately not able to appear on this panel. However, we are thrilled to have Penny Drysdale join the conversation today. So thanks, Penny, for joining us. Today we will reflect on regrowth, renewal and carrying on in response to the festival theme. I'm still working out how to pronounce this, but I think it's Lyapitnam. Yep. Or returning. In the face of destruction, loss and despair, what sustains us? And I particularly think that after last night's election result, we might all need a panel like this today. <laughs> um, we firstly have Paul Collis. Paul is a Bakinji man born in Burke in far western New South Wales on the Darling River. Paul's a poet and a novelist. He has taught Aboriginal studies to Indigenous inmates in juvenile detention centres and prisons. He works as a creative writing academic at the University of Canberra. His first novel, Dancing Home, which I have a copy here and it's for sale at the bookshop at the back, was awarded an ACT Book of the Year in 2018 and the 2016 National David Unipon Award for Previously Unpublished Indigenous Writer. It's a road trip revenge tale of three fellas who, fresh out of prison, return to Wiradjuri country. The main character, Black, um, the main character, Blackie, is returning to his grandmother's country, but I'm sure Paul will talk more about that. We also have Alice Bishop, who grew up in Christmas Hills, Victoria. Her writing has been published by Mianjin, Overland, Australian Book Review, Lip Magazine and the Wheeler Centre. Her debut book is a short story collection called A Constant Hum, which centres around the aftermath of bushfires and devastation on a community. And it's a beautiful, stunning cover. Looks mm -hmm. like this. <laughs> and we also have Penny Drys Drysdale, who some of you here may know, who grew up in central Victoria and lived in Alice Springs for seven years, working at the Arundarana Keelara Healing Centre. She is currently a lawyer and policy advisor in Darwin. Penny won the NT Literary Award Poetry Prize in 2015 and her first book of poetry, Dew and Broken Glass, was published in 2017. Penny has been working with Aranda Women on a book of poetry about the theme of returning and on her second book about love, endings and renewal. So I'd now like to invite the writers to respond first to this topic of regrowth, renewal and carrying on in the face of destruction, loss and despair. Is there anything that you would all like to say on this topic? Carry on, carrying on <laughs> meant something different when I was younger. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell us a bit about that, no. Paul? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, Alternatively, Paul, you and I were chatting before about maybe reading out a bit from your book, which you just that, that was you felt really touched on that theme. What's the theme again? Uh, <laughs> rebuilding from I the know. yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> settle, settle down. <laughs> All right. Well, this is really about um, this section I'm going to read is the transformation of this character, Blackie. You like it, Blackie, or not? Are <laughs> you funny and too? Halfway towards Dubbo to kill the policeman that verbal him, they put him in jail. They stop, get out of the car, have a stretch their legs, and um, there's a loosened crop about to be harvested. One on his grandmother's country. Can you hear me? All right, thanks, better. I'll read you a little bit. And see you. So it's really about Blackie. Becoming at Wiradjuri. I think I call this chapter Becoming Wiradjuri. It's about a dancer. He remembered Yuko, the Japanese exchange student at the girls' school, who looked at him with a smile. She could dance better than all of them. 
She moved like a bird in silent flight, gliding perfectly across a dirty floor, making him feel like a beautiful dancer. I wonder what they'll think of me now, he asked himself, thinking about his decision to kill. He looked away into the distance, away far off onto the horizon. He wondered what was there beyond. He thought of his grandmother out there, dancing the clapsticks, dancing and chanting. She'd make dust fly with her feet on home soil. He kicked off his boots, took his shirt off, stood bare feet on the wet ground. He carefully reached down, gathered mud, covered his, painted his forehead, and then he painted his arms. He turned around and faced Rips and Carlo. Carlo's mouth fell open and the cigarette fell onto his lap. Rips didn't know what to make of it. He just stood there looking shame. Blackie began to chant a traditional chant and then he began to dance. Muddy water flew up, wet his cheek. He bowed his head and held his arms wide, doing a dance like the eagle gliding in silent flight. He was dancing a warning. Ha, ha, ha. Carlo and Rips watched Blackie dancing his country back. Even the silly Lucent stood still and paid attention. Blackie knew that white fellows didn't know the dance he was doing. After tomorrow, he told himself, they'll all know my name. He turned his mind to women again. He imagined those skinny white girls hiding their smiles behind their hands, not looking at him directly. He thought of his grandmother and he thought of his murdered mother, the woman whose face he couldn't remember. The woman murdered when she brought the wrong man home one night. The woman who gave him life, whose life was taken in white rage by a someone who was never pursued nor found. Blackie was two years old. He was found the next day when his nan came to visit. He was screaming for mother's milk, standing in a pissy nappy beside his mother's broken, bloody body on the kitchen floor. And he imagined his father he'd never met, the man with no face shrouded in black, the man who fucked his young mother and told her to keep the evening light on for him. He'd be back home after sunset. He never returned. She didn't see him again. Blackie grew up fatherless. He imagined other black men. He imagined them black brothers all right there with him, right there dancing the warrior dance with him, bringing his grandmother's country back. He clapped his hands and chanted louder, ha, ha, ha. He threw his head back in joy, trying to kiss the sky. His voice echoed back from the rocks. The country knew that a warrior had arrived to claim his place. He cut his foot, but he didn't feel it at all. That baratry warrior felt beautifully alive, dancing, dancing for his country, dancing for his people, dancing for his life. The world went silent around him. The bush and everything else stopped, watched on and admired his power. When he finished, he felt strong. He put his shoes, then his shirt back on, and returned and led on the wire. Even the wire buzzed from his rhythm. Thanks, Paul, for amazing. In terms of looking at uh, how do you get on with things or carry on or whatever this is. I don't know. Mm. I think there's a lot of anger. I know a lot of black folks, a lot of us men have got anger mm. about farmers and sustainability and still being on the land, still assuming that they've got a right to be there feeding the world and the world's starving. I don't see it. There's a river empty out there in Burke. So there's a lot of anger. Um, and not much of an opportunity to, to talk about that rage. It's not just about the environment either, social anger and disruption. So for me, uh, I've always kind of turned towards writing to not so much to express my disgust or rage or, or thoughts, but it's more a chance to take a breath, to think you know, rather than to punch on. Uh, if you knew me, you could see my hand all broken from fights when I was younger. Um, I don't know. 
the answer to it. I don't think there is one answer, and I think the answer changes. Penny or Alice, do you have any um, thoughts on the topic? Just general thoughts? Um, <clears throat> I don't really know how to, to follow Paul. No, me neither. Um, Penny? I, I suppose I'm still with what you were saying, Paul, rather than my own work, but um, I'm wondering how, how Blackie finds his way forward in your story. Maybe you could talk a little bit more about that. Ultimately, love is what controls him, or takes control of him, and he turns his rage from a rage against another person or against a system um, not inward to himself, but in like, you know, giving way gives himself to release a friend, mm. to protect his family, to love his family. And in many ways, he cries for uh, protection of Aboriginal people in the communities. He says to Fingers, the father of his nephews, or his cousin's kids, he says, you New Zealander, take these kids away from me, those boys old enough to go to a boys' home. Those coppers will be after him now because they got me. Take him to New Zealand. Finger says, I've got nowhere to take him. I've got no money. We're stuck here. Mm. So, I don't know. There's no one answer to this stuff. Mm. That, if, you, if you look at the environment, I don't think it can be fixed. I don't see, I don't see that Darling River ever running again. All the floodplains are blocked by farms. Whatever flow they put back in it, that'll go. There'll be nothing. It can't fill again. It's broken. People don't understand it. It's fucking broken. I was also um, thinking about your writing, um, and this is all, all of you, because all of your work is, formally, is really firmly rooted in place and country. And particularly, Paul, your vivid and affectionate descriptions of landscapes and places through the character of Blackie's eyes shed light on the stories of a time pre-colonisation of community nurturing the land. Um, and also Alice's short stories are all about the aftermath of a massive destruction of Black Saturday on a community and all the different people within the community, their different um, reactions and ways of moving forward and healing. How do all of you bring hope or find hope in the face of destruction and devastation in your work? Um, I think, um, I think, you know, when the, when the bushfires of Black Saturday burnt down our family home, um, I think the the first thing I noticed was a real a really a lack of of colour, and it wasn't just a, a bushfire; it was a climate flared firestorm. So it was um, it had the radiant heat of two Hiroshima bombs, and um, and I know bushfire has been used for tens of thousands of years before white people came, and and it's it's a thing that. Um, so Christmas Hills, the place where I grew up, um, is, I don't know if anyone knows the Yarra Valley, so it's on the ridge above the Yarra Valley. And um, I guess there's hope in learning more about how you can kind of get through. And sometimes it's writing and sometimes stuff's really hard. And, but by hearing other people's stories, for example, with the bushfire, um, you you do get hope because you, you do form connections and you kind of share that loss, I guess. And um, I, think, I think writing A Constant Hum's been... It's been a really long process, so it's been, I mean, seven years. I think most books take a long time. But um, that in itself is kind of... And, it, you know, it's a privilege for me to be able to have had the time to write it. A lot of people have lost family and, and are, you know, um, very unwell years on after the fact, you know, with alcohol or suicide or domestic violence. I think, um, you know, 
white communities out where I live often other domestic violence and, and consider it to be something that isn't part of their lives, but it very much is after bushfire and after natural disaster. And I think if we can talk about it and, um, and also give women um, um, their stories to be told, I think there's hope in that as well. Yeah. There's a, there's a voice that often is missing or never spoken to, and it's children. This little book's called Burning. They were Adri kids. They were kicked out of school. They were on the on suspension. Their elders asked them if they'd like to come and learn how to cut coolamans out of trees and how to do coal fires, how to burn the bush, look after it. They taught them through story and they taught them through practice. Have a look and then pass it on. Have a look around. Those kids had uh, behaviour problems, they said, at school. And they were about to be expelled as soon as they went into the bush with their elders. So the location and the teachers were absolutely critical because they listened to the kids and they helped them. Those kids had no more prob behaviour problems. That zine I was asked to launch in Mudgee last year. The kids were so fascinated with what they were learning in traditional culture that they were out of town. They said, no, we've done that now, we're doing something else. They're with their elders back out in the bush learning how to cut out canoes. In that book, they carry on more than 60,000 years of uninterrupted oral story to teach us. But their voices are quite often never heard. And it, it, it's, it's even truer now, I guess, with um, the access to, all, to media, social media, things like that. Quite often the wrong things have been said to kids wrong things presented to kids. But, so I've, I've learned, I've worked for a long time with communities that are devastated, particularly, well, the black community. My life has been in two swings, I suppose. For about 20 years I've worked in schools, working with non-Aboriginal kids more, mainly, and with teachers, trying to uh, have conversations, influence, encourage, discuss things with them. Until one day I was in Redfern in Everly Street. There's an old woman, she's passed on now, so I won't say her name. She's an old auntie. Street kids, Aboriginal kids, would come to her place to sleep at night. She only had two bedrooms, a lounge. Sometimes she could have 12 kids in there, young people, teenagers and that. Once she shut that door, no one would come through. Police came with the TRG, all dressed up, at the bathroom ramp, she about to break the door down. When she came out, she said, you won't be breaking no door down here, what do you want? They wanted one of the boys, 14-year-old, for, for an unpaid fine. No joke. Any weapons in the house? They said, that's the only weapon I can need right here. She patted a Bible on her chest. When I seen that woman standing there so brave, I stopped teaching whitefellas for the next 20 years. I went back into teaching in jails, teaching Aboriginal men, and some of the stuff that we're talking about this returning, this kind of out of your heel, mm. uh, was what I, I taught in cultural studies. I was given the freedom to speak really on a very broad area of culture. So you'll find that in that Dancing Home, Blackie is not only a victim, but he's also a great teacher, I think, mm. through experience or experimental learning, they say, to use those academic terms. Yeah, I'm a bit breathless because I've got asthma. I haven't got my spray. And I get a bit excited when I'm wild about the environment. That's uh, mm. sorry about that. Oh, don't be sorry. It just it reminds me because I don't know either how people carry on. I mean, at, at some point, people put one foot in front of the other, but there are ways that people move forward. And I'm thinking of the, some practical. Ways. I'm thinking of some practical ways in which, um, for example, this festival with the theme of Yarpeetnam about new life. And one of the things is that this festival. You okay? Good. One of the things about this festival is 
um, it has the theme, Yapitnam, about new life. But it also does incredible things in the way it organises the festival to try and encourage new life in the community around the festival as part of, of being Alice Springs. And one of the things that the festival has done and the NT Writers Centre has done is fund some workshops for Aranda women to be writing poetry um, as a means of having that conversation about new life and generating work about new life. And so um, in February, I think we ran the first couple of workshops and the women got together. Many of those women had never written a poem before, but you wouldn't know it because the work that was flowing out of the women was absolutely extraordinary. And some of the women had written before, and so there was a real mix of, of people in the group, and it was quite extraordinary. And we got to the end of the two days and there was no pressure to create anything. But the women actually created, wanted to make a book because they recognised how good the work was, in fact. Um, and it was all around the theme for this festival. And so then they decided, yeah, we will make a book. And we didn't have any money to make the book happen because it wasn't part of the original deal. And so we did this crowdfunding. We just thought, why don't we put it out there, just by email, not fancy website or anything, you know, very old-fashioned way. And we put it out there, and within, like, about a week, we'd raised $10,000 to pay for the printing and the thing for that book, you know. And everyone who was involved in that was thrilled. I can see Pat... <laughs> sitting there smiling because she was some of the women. I don't know if Sylvia is still here. Um, and some of the women that you heard reading on opening night were reading work generated from that, that workshop. And so, and then having the funding enabled the publisher, Ty Lotus Press, um, so we found a publisher. And the publisher had national... Um, <coughs> distribution around Australia and so then we came back to the women okay we've got this way of putting this work out in the world will we try and rush and do it in time for the festival and the women said oh my god you mean it's going to be in bookshops all around Australia and Sydney everywhere and people will just walk in and buy it and then they said this is our first time Penny we've got to make it really good you know we've got to slow down now mm -hmm. and really like and they wanted to have more workshop so, and I think for some of those women who were the rocks of their families and holding everything together, they, these workshops were time out for them to really do that kind of reflection and just keep going in the work that they do because they are the people who keep life going in their families and communities. Pat's nodding. It's true, isn't it, Pat? Like, it's absolutely the way. And so there are ways that people move forward in um, creating a body of work that try in every way, like, keep this hope alive all the time, you know? It's a process as well as... As an end goal. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I tried to write, dancing, uh, in Dancing Home, I tried to write nature, Mother Nature as uh, a leading character. Yeah. So I, I wrote it as considered as I could. And, of course, it's biased. It's through my eyes. Um, but if you drive through that country that I described from Blue Mountains down in, into Bathurst, Bloodlands, and then out to Orange and Wellington, onto Dubbo. You see those mountains, they are truly beautiful. It's the most... I think one thing in Paul's book, um, Dancing Home, that's really stunning, which I've already mentioned, is that through Blackie's eyes, we hear um, the memory of the land. We hear, um, we read about the stories within that land, not just these stunning landscapes themselves, not, and not just the stories of how things were, but what's been lost, um, the scars as well on the country mm. from colonisation. And so I guess that also leads me to ask how do, in all of the work you do, both your writing or the work you do with other writers, how do you... Um, approach colonisation or address it or, or how do you also address or approach decolonisation? Can I say something about those scars on the country first? Yeah. L last year, last year, yeah, uh, some Christian people asked 
uh, Aboriginal healers and elders to come together to to dance for the country, to, to talk about the country, the scars upon it from colonisation up in Casino. 80 people from across the country turned up this year, 26th of January that weekend in Canberra. They had another meeting. I think something like 1,500 uh, Aboriginal healers and elders came from across the country. These old people trying to dance the scars of the country, the damage done, you know. Mm. The psychic violence, to, that's right, the psychic violence to the, to the country. Mm. So there, it's a, people have never, we've never stopped trying to, to care for the country and to be part of it because we're in, in an obligation with it anyway. Mm. We, have, we have a law of obligation, Aboriginal people, to everything and to, and to other people as well. So I hate the anger in me, you know, mm. that rage. Mm. It doesn't belong there. Mm. So the question was, what? How does your work um, approach or address colonisation or decolonisation? I think I've posed the question that it's, we're still colonised. Yeah. Yep. Like you're still in chains. Yeah. Mm. And so... I, I guess my address to it is that it's not gone away. And uh, it's not just me being angry because I'm black. Mm. That's the reality. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Mm. Blackie gives everything for his people. We give enough, poor fella. He's flying first class and I'm sitting on my arse here in hot day in other springs. How's that? Mm. <laughs> hey, good on him. <laughs> I hung with that man for a long time. That took me eight years to write that too. Yeah. But the story, I think, was there all, all along. I just didn't... The words came to me. It's like I didn't write it, you know. There are multiple authors in that book. Men and, men and women I've driven with over the years and hung out with. They're all part of, that. They're all part of the authorship. Mm. Yeah. My, my family don't read very much, neither do I. Uh, I dedicated the book to my brother. <laughs> he hasn't read it. <laughs> I don't think he opened the cover. I don't think he knows that it's dedicated to him. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's the way it is. We were brought up readers, you know, we were brought up lookers. Yeah. I think there's some incredible works at this festival that speak to how to counter colonisation. And it's, it's one of the incredible things about this festival, I think, the way in which it scrutinises those things. And um, I don't know if any of you um, heard the work of Charmaine Paper Talk Green and John Kinsella. In that sense, they've got a book of poetry called False Claims of Colonial Thieves. And it is a dialogue between the two of them that they actually wrote through email exchanges between each other to actually have a conversation about colonisation in Geraldton Mullawa in the Western Australian um, country. And that conversation, if, if you want to, you know, it's one of those books that actually tells us how to be a better country mm. and how to scrutinise those things. And there's many, many books at the festival um, Paul's being one of the most incredible um, books that speaks to that theme. Um, because when you fall in love with Blackie, you'll know how. Also, um, I was going to mention Alice has written an amazing essay, which I would recommend you all have a read of, um, called Heroic Man, Helpful Woman. And um, it's all... I'll let you read what it's about. But there's a brilliant quote in that essay... Um, where, Alice, you talk about um, the firestorm of Black Saturday as representing a loss of colonial control. Do you want to talk us through what you meant by that? Um, so, following Black Saturday in 2009, it's, it's kind of funny when you see something, and probably many people in the audience have had similar, similar things happen, um, or everyone has tragedies in their lives, but... It's really interesting to be on the other side of the news and to see how um, an event is portrayed through through journalism and um, and I'm sure you know Paul you you have that with the Aboriginal community it's portrayed in a way 
that doesn't fit. And for me, it was really how in the aftermath of Black Saturday, um, there's a real focus on that kind of national narrative of um, the heroic, always white man. You know, he might have an ash-smeared face or he might have be in orange overalls and it's always kind of that kind of the myth of the man kind of versus Bush and there are no women in that narrative unless, you know, they're making white bread sandwiches for the CFA or they're huddled in the dam with the kids being that nurturing um, kind of figure and... I think white Australia, not that I'm an expert or anything, but I think white Australia really really feeds into that whole thing of we can contain the bush and these big natural disasters, you know, like go the CFA and stuff like that. And I think there's so many different issues with that, obviously being that it's a very white story and also women... After Black Saturday, my mum was probably the strongest women, woman in our family and that w women really held everything together. And I think so often, and that's why in A Constant Hum, so many of the nar narrators are women or it's, mm. it's um, focused on the complexities of, of women's stories and, and, and relationships breaking down and um, alcohol problems. There's a, there's a lot of hope as well. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but it was really important um, for me to and I only realised this later, but it was it was important for me to kind of counteract um, that kind of really patriotic, gross narrative that you know the small count, you know, the guy on the top of um, his house with the garden hose can save save his house, and here we are hurtling towards climate change, and um, we don't listen to the bush or we don't listen to the first people, and 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 it's all kind of heading in a very worrying way. And um, does that answer your question? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. It's, it's and I say that it's been Aboriginal women that have held us together too, mm. forever. I, I'm, I come from matriarchy law, so women certainly have been the keepers of law and of stories as well, of our bloodlines, of our country, and of us. And when a lot of those women were had gone quiet in the 60s <coughs> through being bashed from men, from drinking and from other kind of violences. A lot of those old women went quiet, they didn't talk no more. And so we lost a great support in how to control ourselves as men. You know, I think other people said it better than me, but if you want to balance the budget, put the women in the treasury, let them run it. I'll show you how to feed kids on virtually nothing and keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it. And the best we can do is economic rationing, dumping bananas by the truckloads into the sea to keep the prices up. It just does not make sense. That whole system is wrong. It's just absolutely wrong. The wastage of food through restaurants and that could be given, be gifted to people that are hungry. A lot of people in Canberra, you believe it or not, I think there's about 16, 1,700 people that are homeless. It's a city that'll kill you in the winter. It's that cold. They're sleeping on cement. There's no need for it. There's no need for it. There truly is no need for that kind of imbalance. But women have been the, the backbone and the heart of Aboriginal Australia forever as well. Mm -hmm. And they too often never, ever get mentioned mm -hmm. or get mentioned in, in some kind of violent act or couple get singled out as great artists or something like that, you know. Mm. And much more than that, they're every day, every minute, every night. Mm. Yeah. Just on that, on that topic, Paul, how, um, how is masculinity and played out in the characters in, in your book? I don't know, I, I did spend eight years on a thesis trying to work out what masculinity was it as well. <laughs> There's no one definition, you know. Yeah. Uh, ultimately, it's, it, all this stuff is performance-driven and it's, and it's modelled on bad modelling. You know, it's truly modelled on bad modelling. When people say, oh, you can't go back, no one's saying we want to go back. 
but we need to be we, we need to act a lot better towards each other. And if that comes back to what I was saying right at the beginning about te- mm. talking with kids, teaching kids. Mm. So again, this funding to schools is all over the place. Up here, would know it better than anywhere. Bilingual schools have been kicked and kicked and kicked around by every government that comes in. Yeah. One will fund it, one will take it away. Even Julia Gillard, when she was Prime Minister, said, everyone must learn English, and she was referring to this community. Mm. How, you know, what rot? I just don't get it. I don't, I don't understand why we've got fools running the country. <laughs> well, anyone know the Still. New Zealand national anthem? Got a boat? <laughs> God. Well, so, yeah, I think that's where, it's, where it needs to where it needs to be. In that book, it's very hard to describe, so I use performances um, and stereotypes mm. in much the same way as the tracker, that film, uses stereotypes to, to uh, display what's going on through the action. Mm. So Blackie's a little complicated, but, well, more rounded, I suppose, because I make him postmodern in so much that he, you can't be in one place. Mm. It's, you're continually changing and moving into and out of identity, I suppose. Don't think of it as fixed, Stuart Hall says, but we're always in a production of ourselves. We never arrive at being. So he talks about being and becoming. We never arrive. Mm. Yes. That, that really nicely um, goes into the next question I was going to ask. I was watching a panel earlier and the author said, oh, it's always non-white authors that get asked about identity in writing and not other authors. So this is a question for all of you <laughs> about identity. And in what way do you think loss and devastation um, in the characters that you're working in or your process of writing forms (coughs) identity or reforms identity? Um, I mean, it sounds cliche, but I think loss and, and hardship, maybe it sounds like a privileged thing to say, but it does scaffold you in a way. Um, And I think a lot of characters in books that I like reading, whether it's my favourite... I keep talking about my favourite writers up here. So, but they're very Melbourne-focused. So Josephine Rowe and Tony Birch. And there are so many um, writers that I look up to that, that focus on characters that maybe they're going through a really, 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 really shit time, but it's the smaller details in life that kind of... They're illuminated through through text. And I think... And that's helped me when I've gone through hard times in that, you know, if I read someone like, like Birch's writing or Rose's writing and I, and I go, oh, there, there's a kind of, you're like, oh, they've done it. Because you can sense them in the work and, and, and you realise, you know, or with Paul's reading the other night, I, I just, it's empowering such a tacky word, but it just feels, it feels, it, it does really give you hope. And I think that if you can share that with, if you can, you can reach a reader somehow through that, then that's a really cool thing. Mm, yeah. I think um, love, if, you're, if you fall in love or you experience great loss and pain, your whole identity is shattered, really. Like, and it has to... It's fragmented and you've got to find a way forward and to, I guess, rebuild that identity, which is what... Um, panels are and I suppose my work Dew and Broken Glass is really about moving to Alice Springs and building a relationship with people in place here because I think when I arrived here my identity was a bit shattered Mm. because um, I knew I was in this place and needed to find an identity in relation to the landscape here and the people who are the rightful owners of this place. And that was a long journey. That's a seven-year journey of self-scrutiny and writing poems and thinking through those issues. But also my current work is about what happens when... There's a... when love atrophies, if you like, when there's separation. And so all of the things that you once had as part of your certain world are no longer there. Mm. And you can, at one level, like, appreciate and respect that that's maybe something that has to happen. Mm. And you can watch that demise, if you like. 
but um, you're not the same person. You know, you're in a sense shattered by that. And at some point, you have to find your way forward back to yourself, which is in a sense a returning, mm. because you were, you know, you were always there. And so my current work is exploring those kinds of themes, but it's pretty hard going because when you're in that place, to look at yourself with such... Um, brutality is not the right word, but it's looking at almost interrogating yourself and who you are and what you believe in and how you relate to all the other people around you. And I think that there's all sorts of different kinds of surrender, I guess, that has to happen for you to refine your own story. And it doesn't happen, it's not a linear process, it's like this whole back and forward journey. And it's one of the things I love about Paul's book because it's that story that you have is about that road trip. And so there are points along that way where Blackie's, you know, Blackie's identity is kind of questioned in that way. He's He's thinking about himself and who he's going to be. And there's that wonderful yeah. moment early on in the book where Blackie's just thinking to himself as they're driving through different landscapes and it's a bit of a quite a drug-fueled road trip as well, but he's questioning all these things and suddenly he says out loud, oh, am I still black? To the person he was travelling with. And it was this, from my perspective as a reader, it felt like this moment of going, I've lost so much, have I lost that too? Um, in that time lost to incarceration. That, that when he questions himself, I'm still black, am I still black? Mm. Yeah, you're a blackie, mm. Carlos says. And blackie says, yeah, you don't even know me fucking name. <laughs> don't even know me name. And it came about from my uh, former headmaster, Peter Gephardt, who returned from Bathurst, at All Saints, where I was, to uh, Geelong Grammar, Melbourne, and then finished his last 10 years of his working life as a district court judge in Melbourne. He was in the Coorong one time, he wrote, and said uh, an Aboriginal man had come before him who didn't know his name. You see, the state had changed that man's name more than 20 times. He didn't know who he was on that day. Didn't know which one they charged. More than 20 times. Peter says, how can I sentence a man who don't know who it is? And so that, that question, I've taken bits of my life and things that I've read and seen and I've put them as much as I could in there. You heard me read a little bit before about when Blackie's dancing, when he's starting to get back into a spiritual sense of identity. Uh, he threw his head back as if to kiss the sky. Anyone know which song that comes from? Which one? Purple Haze. Purple Haze. <laughs> <laughs> well done. So... And if you give it a, one guy at uni wanted to, he's a third year psych student, he wants to analyse Blackie. I said, leave the poor man alone. He said, he's got issues. I, lo I love what you, what you said, Alex. It's, it's really wonderful to hear you speak like that. And I love to hear, I'd love to read that book of yours. There is, it, it is about connection. Is, is love a stranger in an open car? What is love? And so it's very hard. Uh, the reason I haven't written any love poems, mm. I have one, but it's for another time. <laughs> it's for a drinking time, I think. Um, the reason I haven't written any is because they're really hard to write, to do any justice at all. And love slips around. And it's not in the same place. Mm. And it's never the same. It continues to change. Mm. Can you ever return to who you were? Mm. I don't think so. I think we've all been changed from whatever experience it is. So when you say, is there a returning, mm. there's a difference, mm. I think. Mm. It's a great difference. You can't be the same after that bushfire. Yeah. Mm. You cannot be the same after the devastation of being homeless. Mm. You can't be. Mm. After jail. I was also, um, and we're looking today at uh, rebuilding from the broken and I wonder for all of you as writers about the process of what you've written about and all of you have written about great loss, um, some of you drawing on your personal lives, others drawing on general experiences, how much of that um, thinking through 
that brokenness or the sad things was a healing process or how much having to face that, because we know healing is hard work, made that process really hard as well? Um, I'm thinking now of, and I'm, it's so bad that I don't know the name of it, but what's that kind of pottery that's Japanese and... Uh, wabi-sabi. Is it wabi-sabi? Yeah. But so, so bad that I don't know it. Yeah. Where they, um, and probably everyone knows about it. So, But anyway, so <laughs> it's when, um, and I have no authority to speak on this, but I'm just thinking about reading about it in that mm. when um, the kind of practice of when pottery and stuff's broken up, um, you, do you want to explain what it is? Because <laughs> Yeah. Uh, well, there's crazing. So it's all about creating a hole from broken from something pieces. that's broken with <laughs> yeah. the gold, um, right. the gold glue that and highlights the that cracks. highlights the cracks rather yeah. than than kind of rather than smoothing everything over and going, um, you know, or discarding the pieces and that right. and that building them back up with new beauty with a new beauty. Mm. Yeah, and um, oh, that's just what I was thinking about then. But um, mm. someone else. Paul or Penny? I've forgotten the question. I mean, anyway. <laughs> I've got something to say, but you were talking. No, you go. You go. I think it might be the last thing I'll say. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was just going to read a little poem called Invisible Journeys. I see a feather alone on rock the wind pushing her a little. She's calling for a lightness of touch, a respect for freedom, an acceptance that we lose the very things that once helped us fly. Out jumps a wren so blue it hurts when I look at her, yet it hurts when she is gone. The weaving of air by birds Leaves no product, no prize, no trace. There is no straw turned into gold. Yet the leaves say, shh. Watch these tender, invisible journeys. Watch this stitching of sky lighten the earth. Mm, thanks, Penny. <laughs> um, on the thing of love, Love things. Anyone heard any postmodern poems? Anyone know anything about postmodern poetry? I think I might be making it up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, by the way, my novel, Dancing Home, is a new genre in writing. It's called Kuri Noir. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know what Kuri means? Yeah. Blackfella? Yeah, Kuri Noir. Anyway, I will be heard. I'll only say this once. Postmodern poetry is about the breaking of the poem. So here's the first one. B -b -b Broken. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> the second one is that I'm sh 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 shattered. Thanks. <laughs> and the third one, everyone loves the third poem. It's a reflection poem. Ay, 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 ay. You, 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 you. Thanks. <laughs> so that's how you make love, I think. <laughs> Told you, stunned. <laughs> Not easy no. postmodernist. <laughs> um, so I guess what I was getting at before was your the books that you and the, what you are all producing. Is there some sense to which they the, the works you are producing is healing for yourselves? I'm still b b broke. <laughs> <laughs> Because I'm shattered. Yeah. yeah, that has been great healing for me. I had a lot of anger. I still got a fair bit too. But uh, I hope I hang on to some of it. I don't want to be completely blissed out. <laughs> that's, not, that's not the way Blackie rolls. No. Uh, but it, it, I did deal with a lot of relationship stuff. Mm. Anger uh, that I had from a relationship that I didn't anymore. I had a lot of grief around my dead grandmother some things that I should have done when she was alive. So it took me eight years to write that book, but it took me more than 20 years to attempt it, to say sorry. So yeah, it did do a lot.
Um, for me, I think threaded through a constant hum is there are a lot of things that um, and experiences that I yeah, recording them, I mean, not that it's autobiographical, but it's kind of a lot of experiences. There's, there, it was a nice, um, it was a good thing to do for me as well. But um, yeah, I don't know. I, uh, <laughs> help us, Penny. <laughs> yeah, please help us, Penny. <laughs> well, one of the things that I struggle with in my work is in my current um, writing is how we deal with endings because we never want endings mm -hmm. and we, you know, I have this image sometimes when I've been in Darwin, you know in Darwin you always watch the sunset, it's a thing you do and, you know, I have this image of this little loony cartoon character sitting on the horizon trying to stop the sun from setting, mm -hmm. you know. But of course, if you stop the sun from setting, A, you get burnt, and B, nothing will rise. The, the sun can't <coughs> rise the next day if it hasn't set the night before. And so there's something about how we try and deal with endings. Um, but that's not just, I mean, you can have an intellectual understanding that that's silly, but you actually have to emotionally go through the journey of that. And so for me, I think writing a whole lot of different things that are not actually about the particular incident in question, but are about observing in nature or in relationships or in lives that you see around, actually can you come to some greater acceptance that sometimes those things are actually important and that that is part of the healing process and for me I couldn't do that if I didn't write or write poetry because it's how you make sense of the world I guess. I think there's, I've got two, two things to say around endings. One is, oh, well, endings and return I suppose. Mm. Um, a lot of people believe that there are seven souls in the world, that's it. The soul doesn't reproduce and it can't die. When the body dies, soul will go into another body. Could be dirt, it could be anything in nature, it could be person, animal. And so in, a, in some aspect, you never leave. Um, and it also speaks to that which I grew up with, everything being in the sacred, step lightly, carefully, go about your business way with the world. Everything's in relationship with you. So death doesn't keep us away from our loved ones. They still inform me, I still visit. It goes to still present. Um, sometimes I've been caught talking to myself, or seemingly, but it might be because well, one time it was just after my mum died and she was near me, you know, I could feel her, I was talking to her. Sometimes I could smell bread burning because they used to cook dampers and that, and I'll, I'll, wood-fire stoves and then I can still smell it. It's not there, but I can smell it. I know that Nana or, or Mum's there, you know, to inform me, guide me somewhere. I might be getting into trouble or about to. So it's another way of moving. Mm. The other thing is the issue of um, responsibility to stories. I wrote Dancing Home as honestly as I could. I didn't try to I haven't got a great vocabulary. I, I haven't done lit studies. I've done two creative writing subjects. That's it, creative writing one and two. I've got a doctorate in cultural theory. Um, if you heard me last night, I could tell lies. Well, what's truth anyway? <laughs> Pontius Pilate asked, what is truth? Hmm. So I grew up with good storytellers really good storytellers. Um, when they tell the story, they'd evoke the spirit of the person or the, the thing that they were doing. You can see that in dance all the time. And if you get, if you had been with me when I was a little boy about that girl's age out there, when the mole fellas used to come to our camp and dance at night, it's like you own a spirit world with them. It's absolutely beautiful. And it was something which I never wanted to return from. Mm -hmm. But of course, 
I have it. Life is an imagination, they say. Mm -hmm. So I carry the responsibility of stories very importantly. My grandfather thought that he was the last speaker or one of the last speakers of Barkindji and that no one wanted to talk Barkindji anymore. So when I asked him, Grandfather, why don't you teach me Barkindji when I was 11? He asked me, he said, who are you going to speak to, boy, when I'm gone? So to die with that responsibility, with that sadness, it's never left me that, that he felt like that. He was my best friend, my grandfather, by a long way. Still is. Uh, with story, I've been asking writers, authors, in this workshop group that I've been teaching called Storygram Project, what is the responsibility that the story carries in them if the story is of other people? Um, lastly, before we move on to audience questions, um, I feel like all of your books have, and essays and poetry has given me a lot of hope um, in lots of ways, even though they <coughs> touch on really hard topics and devastation and other things. They're, every single book is, and poem is imbued with so much hope, but where are all of you finding hope right now? Next question. I... <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I've got my hope is, is, is in art, in, in, in story and in art. In writing. I don't trust politicians, I've got no hope there. So give art a chance. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I agree with Paul, and just on a more personal level, for me, hope has really been coming back to Alice Springs, really. Um, both for this festival and the kind of learning that and the opportunity uh, I've had to be part of it and the learning. But also um, working with the Arundel women on their poetry. You know, I worked with some of those women for about um, seven years and it was wonderful. But I have to say it's so much more lovely doing poetry with them than doing the pays and the administration. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so it's a great privilege. And so for me, that's where hope comes. Um, yeah, I think I probably, I found a lot of hope this weekend in the festival and I feel, I feel, I was walking along um, before and it was, what was it, the rainy day yesterday and it, it just felt so good and I'm finding hope in listening to other people and in all the books I've got to take home with me and, um, and yeah, I'm really, I feel really lucky to have, it's a really special festival and um, I feel really lucky to be here, so thank you. Now, we've got a bit of time for audience questions, if um, about five or ten minutes, if there are people that would like to direct questions to all the authors or to one of the authors. Yeah, good afternoon. Thank you so much. That was so beautiful and moving. Um, I just sort of, as a reader, kind of want to acknowledge just the incredible generosity and the incredible kind of offering that writing something, the works that you have written, um, does. And it's sort of acknowledging the hard work, you know, that eight-year kind of journey that you've each been on in your different ways. And, um, Alice, I actually just wanted to ask you about not only is this a, your journey and your healing journey, um, writing the stories, but actually... I think people reading the stories will, will have such a go on their own journey and their own healing and I think that's an incredible offering and I wonder how your family have actually responded to the collection in that way and what kind of healing you've shared together as well. Full disclosure, I know Kate, she's an old friend of mine. <laughs> but, um, and she does lots of great work for Magabala Books and... Um, and um, it's it's a hard thing to talk about because I think um, I dedicated this book to my mum and dad and um, and dad's kind of a bit gruff and not really um, he actually appeared in um, one of Tony Birch's essays recently because they had a bit of a connection and um, that's what prompted me to write Coppering because I I thought I thought my dad has been there for me so much and. He said to me, um, he sent me a text the other day and he was just like, you know, your writing alley has been a rock for me. 
um, in regards to the bushfires. And, and for me, that was a really special um, text to receive because I think he doesn't really talk about it as much as maybe he should. And, um, and, um, and you know, they're, they're, they've rebuilt and, and all of that stuff, but at the same time, it's, it's kind of that acknowledgement that things do linger and kind of what we've been talking about tonight in that sometimes it's really important um, um, to talk about it. My younger brother, he's 28, and he, um, he doesn't talk about it much, but um, my mum, I think, I think we were really lucky in that we kind of did come closer together um, after the fire and... Um, and and yeah, sometimes big things like that can either break. It's it's sometimes just luck too. Sometimes it can break a family, or sometimes it can encompass you can come closer together. And um, it's it's really nice to be able to dedicate a book to to my parents who were rocks throughout you know the fire, and um, and I think they're really happy. <laughs> so we'll hope. <laughs> Thanks, Kate. Any other questions? <laughs> Any other questions before we finish up? Anyone remember the, the postmodern poem? <laughs> <laughs> thank you. I like that poem. All right, thank you, everyone, so much for coming along. This, I um, yeah, I'm blown away what I've heard today, and thank you so much for all of you being brave and courageous. Um, and being really vulnerable with all of us too about talking about such personal and intimate things. Mm -hmm.